Well, according to this, going really fast and doing all of this stuff, uh, we're now recording. So I'm assuming that's what that means. Right? That was a very technical description. Yeah, I thought so. I thought it was pretty good. When you do this stuff, you know. Those of you who are listening online, I'm not even going to tell you what I just did. You just have to show up. And otherwise, you just you don't get all the visuals. Right? Okay, so today... We begin with uh, the eighth verse of the second chapter, which means we've covered from 1-1 through 2-7. So if you have any questions about what we've already covered, something that we didn't quite scratch where it itches, didn't get where we needed to go, or questions about the study for tonight, which goes through uh, verse 11, so there's not a lot in there, uh, but there's enough stuff for us to have some fun with. Um, if you've got that, then by all means bring those up. I will not go to 12 and beyond. We won't get ahead of ourselves because um, that's next week. But um, four, anywhere up through to 11. Um, and if you noticed, if you did the study guides, you'll notice that I did make some changes and particularly with regard to the words. So if you got part of that, didn't get any of it, wondering why in the world did you do that, uh, feel free to bring one of those up. And then of course, there is the ever popular last question, which this week is number 14, and that is where you have questions. So, any questions of any kind that we should address tonight? Suffer? Yes, suffer. It was an interesting definition, and I just had never heard of that. Okay. Like that. Okay. Raquel? Um, this, uh, I wanted, what do we know about Smyrna? Ah, yes. Smyrna, Smyrna, Smyrna. Okay. These are questions, so we need question marks. Okay, and that is what? Uh, the synagogue of Satan. Ah, okay. So what's with the synagogue of Satan? And mine was, on, I have my answer, but I'd like you to expound on number 12, which is, what is the second death? Ah, the second death, yes. I do not promise to expound, since expound is related to expand, and with what you give, it may be what I've got. So we'll just have to wait and see. Okay, I'll take it. I, I had 12. Okay. Expound. <laughs> we're, we're pushing those expoundings, yes. Any others? So literal or figurative? And then 
What's that about? Okay. Are we there? Because one of the things that I'm going to do is ask questions of you tonight as we hit some of these words um, and uh, ask you, what is it? Why is it there? What did you get out of that, etc.? cetera? Um, because part of the art of not just studying, but learning how to study, and that's really what this is about. Um, I, I, I want eventually everyone here to be capable of doing exactly what I'm doing and putting these study guides together. Um, I hope, honestly, that you don't quite catch up to where I am this year, because I'm sort of hoping that the 40 years counts for something. <laughs> but if you do, hey, congratulations, and I will stand in awe um, and perhaps recruit you. But um, one of the things that people ask me all the time is, so where do you come up with these questions? And particularly with the words, why, why that word? Where do you get these words? How do you decide which ones? Because if you're studying the word on your own, you probably do not have always someone who's given you a list that says, look up those words. So how do you decide, short of retranslating and, and doing research on, because you know, it's one thing to translate the word, it's another to research it and find its etymology and broaden the meaning of it. And short of doing that, then okay, how do you figure out which ones are the ones that are going to be fruitful for you? And uh, so I'd like you to be sharing that with each other tonight and from now on. All right, so John is reporting messages that have been given to him by Jesus. Jesus says, tell the churches these things. And then to each of seven churches gives a message. So we start with verse 8. It's chapter 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Now, the first and the last, what's that refer to? That's who? Alpha and Omega. Yeah. The Alpha and Omega is a, a phrase. It's a figure of speech. He's already used it. He'll use it again. And another way of saying that is the first and the last. So um, that is not, uh, first and the last is not a translation of Alpha and Omega. It, it does actually say first and last. But it means exactly the same thing. And of course, who is first and last? And, and what, what is first and last refer to with regard to Jesus? He was here in the beginning. Okay. He was here in the beginning. And he will return again. Yeah. In fact, he was here before the beginning, before the beginning. and will be here after the end. Eternity. Yeah. It is, it is the word eternal, which you should all go home and ponder tonight right before you try to go to sleep because <laughs> it will drive you crazy. It is a fun word to think about, but just the simple thought of how old is eternal and does anybody does everybody catch the fallacy of my question how, how do you measure that measure what the age of eternity yeah it's the dawning well actually the dawning is the beginning 
So Jesus knows how old the dawning is. Yeah, the problem with the question is eternal doesn't have an age. By definition, there's no age. Because any age you put on it has a beginning and, and implied an end. And before the beginning, he is. Which, by the way, comes back to the name that God gave us for himself. I am. Is the verb to be. First person singular. I am. And it is a statement of eternity. So, I mean, again, that's one you should ponder tonight for hours and hours and hours and hours. Okay. Um, come to, he was dead, he came to life. That one's pretty obvious. All right. So, the only question then left from that one little statement is what about this Smyrna thing? So, what did you get? What do we know about Smyrna? Go ahead. Okay. Cultural center of Minor. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't like that, but okay. Polycarp was martyred there. Okay. Does anybody know who Polycarp is? Does anybody know who Polycarp? Okay. Then tell us a little bit about Polycarp. He was the bishop of that area. Okay. Yeah, he was a bishop, actually. Because, again, we've got to be careful. And most of the historical accounts were written hundreds of years later, so they will use that terminology, but he was by no means the only one. But, but as a leader of that area, and very, uh, very, very early in the history of the church, there was one thing in particular that made him stand out above everybody else. Did you... Pardon? Well, yeah, that was the cap of it. But the reason he had the extreme suffering is because he stood out above everybody else. So the Romans chose him, basically, by the way, here's the irony, to do exactly what they didn't want to do with John. Because they did make, in American terms, the word martyr simply means witness. So he was already that. But they made a martyr out of him. And it, it backfired on them big time. And, of course, the reason they chose him was he was a disciple of John. So he was, as an old man at this time, he was one of the few who could say, I walked with, I talked with, I learned with one of the apostles. I mean, let's face it, today, no, we're generations and on and on away from, separated from that but he was actually one of John's personal students, for want of a better term, that's what the word disciple means. And uh, because of that, he had a status that, and he was known for personal piety. Um, there's stories of his martyrdom that if they're true, uh, and I have no reason to believe they're not true, but we just, we don't have any real close to that time. Um, he was an amazing person. So this was, Smyrna is associated with Polycarp. Polycarp may well have been there during this time. We don't know. He, he may actually have been on the island with John. Okay, what else do we know about Smyrna? Well, from the city, it was in 
Roman time was considered the most brilliant city of Asia Minor. Okay. And uh, its streets were wide and paved. It was celebrated for its uh, schools of science and medicine and its handsome buildings, which I guess would be, you know. Okay. Paved streets, architecture, science, medicine. What does that say to you? Money, wealth, and that was one of the things it was known for. They were a port, a well, well-known port in the area. I mean, a trading center. Trading port, yeah. Yeah, and uh, again, like Ephesus. Uh, in fact, it, and it's funny in a way because all these things we're saying about Eph- uh, about Smyrna, there were those that said about Ephesus, and some of us were saying the very same things. Cultural center of Asia Minor that phrase. And you won't see it about other cities. Ephesus and Smyrna were kind of rivals in that. But the two of them, uh, compared to all the other cities, sort of rose above all the others. So it's kind of like, you know, New York is the heart of the United States. It's the heartbeat of the United States. Unless, of course, you live in LA, in which case you think that's the stupidest thing you ever heard. Because, of course, L.A. is and Hollywood is, you know, cultural center. And, of course, anybody in New York says Broadway's a cultural city center. Hollywood's full of hacks. Um, so you get this kind of a friendly or maybe not so rivalry. And it was quite true back then as well. So all of those things are true uh, about them anyway, things that we knew. Yeah, and that was uh, a reward that Rome would give to various cities uh, for various reasons, but all of them having to do with support of Rome. And one of the things that Smyrna also had in common with Ephesus was they were, the city was a center of the imperial cult. Right, it was because it was a provincial capital, so they would have done that. So this is, this is a, uh, for the Roman Empire, at the time of the Roman Empire, this is a big place, an important place. Now, if you've, okay, you've got more? I do. Um, I, I don't know, I just came out among the commentaries. It says the Greek word translated Smyrna was used in the Septuagint, the Greek, trans, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to translate the Hebrew word myrrh, a resinous substance used as a perfume for both the living and the dead. Okay. So there are some that believe that's the, um, the root of the word and how they came to name the city, although I don't believe we have anything solid on that. Now, one of the other things that uh, you should know about it is, um, as we're going to see in the letter, uh, th- there's no criticism. Okay? So the city was a, did you hear what I said? It was a center of the imperial cult. What does that mean? What was the imperial cult? It was the worship of the emperor. Okay? It started with the worship of the dead emperors. Because it's always simpler to worship someone's dead. But fairly quickly, it morphed into the worship of the sitting emperor. Uh, this is by no means new to Rome. It was actually 
the common, the norm for big empires in the ancient days. Uh, the most, the one that we're probably most familiar with would be Egypt, because uh, the Egyptian pharaoh was considered to be, by definition, half god, half human, standing in the gap between the gods and humanity. Um, that's kind of where this was, and so it was uh, worship, it was um, patriotism, if I could use that word, because these are Romans, and uh, so to support the rulers of Rome would be what we would refer to as patriotic, and that patriotism became more important than anything else. So in the persecutions that came over the next uh, 100 years or so as they developed and really dating backwards because it was very much the same as what happened in the mid first century, late mid first century when uh, some of the most uh, deadly persecutions happened in Rome. No one cared that they were Christian. No one cared that they worshipped Jesus. What they cared about was that they didn't worship the emperor. Now they also, the, the populace typically cared that they didn't worship the other gods because there were innumerable of them in the, the Greek and Roman pantheons um, and then they, they tended to mirror each other so when you compare the two pantheons together it's generally uh, agreed that they were simply Greek and Roman names for uh, the same characters. But the, the bottom line is there was a fear that those who would not worship them angered them. So for example, in Ephesus, <clears throat> excuse me, we talked last week about Artemis and Ephesus being uh, one of the centers of worship of Artemis. Well, what happens if Artemis gets mad? Artemis is a god, right? So we're in trouble. And if all of the gods get mad, because the Christians refuse to worship any of them, then we're in big trouble. But even worse, what would it say if the Christians who were part of the Roman Empire refused to worship the emperor? It was considered treasonous. If you don't worship the emperor, then you must not be patriotic. You must not be one of us. Maybe you sympathize with our enemies, which by the way, they had by the hundreds because they basically never stopped attacking anyone on their borders. Even if they made truces and allies of them, uh, then they would go attack the ones who were more immediately dangerous, subdue them, turn around and attack their allies. You know, read the, the history of Rome in Britain, it's fascinating because they were treacherous. So everybody hated Rome. They believed they could not afford to have people in their midst who did not support them and support the emperor. And so Christians, Jews as well, but Jews were not growing because Jews were considered uh, almost exclusively to be an ethnic group at the time certainly by the Gentiles. But Christians were growing leaps and bounds, the numbers, from every group. 
And that then became a very big threat. What if we have so many that they no longer and, and, the, and they no longer support the empire that the empire sort of implodes. There's no strength within it anymore. So being part of the imperial cult was very, very important. Now, if you're part of a church in Smyrna at that time, that means there's a pressure on you to do that, to act like them, to live like them, to support them, and to worship the emperor. But they didn't. So this was, this was a, a fairly unique congregation, a very faithful congregation, a very uh, brave group of people. Because there were some pretty heavy um, consequences if you didn't. That's who we're talking about. They, by the way, as a, as a city, they kind of kept that up. One of the notes that I saw was that centuries later, when the so-called Christianized Greek world, the eastern part of the Roman Empire, fell to the, to the uh, Muslim Turks, Smyrna was one of the last holdouts. So, I mean, they, they simply had uh, a, a kind of a sense of we will not give in. So when the Christians from Smyrna became Christian, we will not give in. There was a, either a steadfastness or a stubbornness, depending on which way you saw it, that was pretty much indicative of all the people there. That's who we're looking at. Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So we have the luxury of taking some time and unpacking this. I know your tribulation. What was that word? Ellipsis. What? Ellipsis. Say it quickly, because it's fun. Ellipsis. Yeah. It's T-H-L. And yeah, there's, that's not a natural thing in our language. So, and then you've got the P-S, which is one letter in Greek. So, flipsis. Now, what is flipsis other than tribulation? Oppressing, pressing together, pressure, oppression, affliction, distress, straits. Yeah. So far, have you heard anything uh, makes you want to have it? No. no. Yeah. By and large, not a really good thing. <laughs> Excuse me. That first word, pressure, is very important because that goes to the root of the word. Now, why did I ask you to look this word up, you suppose? Not asking you to read my mind, just speculate. Well, maybe because it's not going to be a fun time. Yeah. You know, it's just a tremendous uh, hardship. Okay. Okay, so they're, they're going through tremendous hardship. And Jesus is saying, I get it. I know that. I see that. Which probably was a very encouraging thing. A message from the Lord himself saying, I get it. I see what you're doing. You know, but there's more. Pressing, I, I guess I, I'm thinking of like purifying the pressure that it takes to 
pressure. So pressure can uh, can bring out something good. Yeah. Okay. It, it is, it is, well, hold that thought. Uh, the first part of what you're saying is entirely possible that as we look at this and we know um, that we ourselves, as we go through pressures in life, can come out on the other end stronger. Go back to Hebrews 12. Why does God allow us to go through these things? Because he is our uh, pedagogue. He is walking us through life and strengthening us but he's doing it very strategically, and of course he knows when it will make us stronger and when it will break us and doesn't allow us to go to the break part. But they didn't have that. There's another word which we will probably encounter. We alluded to it last week um, that was more that concept. Did anybody find in the, the resources you were looking at the etymology of the word flipsis? In other words, the words get changed in their application over centuries. But they start off with something, or at least the earliest that we can find. And that's what's called the etymology. It's looking at the root of it. Did anybody find that? The early usage of this word. If you were using, uh, I believe Kittel, well the big Kittel, yes. I believe the abridged Kittel, little Kittel. Um, even um, Trench. Vines hints at it. Trench comes out and, and gives it to you. This word was used as both a torture and an execution mode. So we're in a war and we want to either demoralize the enemy, in which case you would torture, because remember uh, our wars today can be conducted from different continents, literally, right? They didn't do that. They were within a yard, hundreds of yards at the most of each other for their weapons to reach each other. So they were in sight of each other. And if they captured, say, uh, not just a soldier, but perhaps one of the leaders, and they wanted to demoralize the other side, they would torture them in front of everybody and allow that horde 200 yards over there that can still see them to see what they were doing and hear the screams. Okay. Uh, there is, of course, the old um, want to just get information out of you thing that they would do. But it was, uh, as most tortures, it was effective enough that if you continue it, it will kill. And so it was also a way of putting someone to death if you wanted to put them to death in a horrible way, like crucifixion. Crucifixion was um, ineffective as an execution, right? I mean, as an execution, the best thing is just go ahead and lop their heads off because it's very quick. Like that, you don't have to mess with them anymore. They're gone. But that's quick and easy. So the point of crucifixion was they linger on in pain, agony, for days and people see it and are intimidated by it. Same with this. It was not going to be days probably, but uh, it was something that people would see. So they would stretch the victim. 
It could be, it could be simply ropes, trees, you know, cinching them. But uh, the, the more colorful would be tying to horses. And then just leading the horses slowly but surely away. Now, that, that's not the execution. That's not thlipsis. That was a prep for thlipsis because it take, took away any give, any ability that the, that person had to flex with the weight and take what was about to happen. Then they would put weights, usually stones, heavy stones, on that person's chest. And it would crush them and suffocate them. It was very painful. And of course, it was very visible to everybody. Thlipsis. So when Jesus says, I get it, I know your thlipsis, there's a weight of meaning there that it just we get, we get lost because we don't know what the word meant. He did not mean, I know, I know that they're tying you to horses and torturing you to death. Because the odds are pretty good they weren't doing that yet. But the imagery of it, using it as a, uh, as a metaphor, everybody got that. Now, does that make sense? Now, let me tell you again the sources that I used. Because, obviously, you're not going to get that from Strong's. Okay? And by the way, a lot of the online things you're using that give you a few synonyms, it's basically Strong's. Strong's is a concordance. It's giving you one, two, or three synonyms, uh, and that's it for the simple reason that's all the room they've got. Strong, Strong, by the way, was an amazing scholar to do what he did, and nobody else had it, and there were no computers. But it's extremely shallow in terms of the depth of the meaning. So you have to go deeper. Vines sometimes will give you these kinds of meanings, but vines, where strong will give you two or three words, vines will give you two or three sentences, sometimes even a couple paragraphs. But that's it. Then you can graduate to something, uh, uh, by the way, various um, commentaries. All a commentary is is a book of what we're doing right now. Just put into writing, just teaching, put into writing. So if you've got a good commentary that's not just lots of fluff, or for that matter, lots of inaccuracies, because unfortunately that happens too, then you may find them giving you this because they have looked at those other resources, and they'll usually footnote it for you. In T1, which is the room across the hallway there, there's a number of resources, and one of them is a 12 or a 10 volume dictionary. Um, most of you would find yourself really struggling with that. But um, there's also a one volume abridgment of that. And that one, pretty much everybody here can use. There's a few times where, yeah, you'd have to read a foreign language. So you just, frankly, not going to get much out of that sentence. But for the most part, he cuts that stuff out and then truncates the rest of it. And that will give you a lot of this. For those of you, couple, three of you, who have uh, a Greek background, um, another resource is Trench's Synonyms of the New Testament. And Trench, uh, he, he's very picky because the book's only that big. It's a little paperback, and it's that big. Um, and he simply picks various subjects 
and looks at the synonyms. So one of those is pressure or tribulation. And he does talk about flipsis and he gives you this information. So you're not going to get it unless you're looking at a source that's going to go deeper back into the etymology. But if you keep dig digging for those, you'll find them. Um, some of what I just uh, referred to you is public domain. So you know you don't you don't have to go out and buy a book. Many times they're on the online. Um, and if you do buy the book, always buy Amazon and used or somewhere else and used. Emphasis on used. Do not pay forty dollars for what you can buy for four. Right. So. This is the kind of thing, that word, you guys are capable of doing that. Now, it takes more time, I get that. And maybe you don't have the time, which means I still have some usefulness. So that's kind of nice. But I want you to understand, you're capable at your level of study right now to dig those things out. And that's one of, that's one of the biggest reasons that I put these in. It enriches our understanding, but it also is telling you, you can do this. Okay, then he says, I know your poverty, but you're rich. People have been debating that one for roughly 1,900 years. <laughs> so what does he mean? I know your poverty, but you're rich. And what, what might that refer to from what we've already talked about? Okay, could be spiritually rich. What's the other way of being rich? Well, that would, I think, be spiritually still. What do we, what do we know about Smyrna? Yeah. I mean, is, that is the primary meaning of the word in language. Well, that's the, that's the argument. Because, that's the 1,900-year-old argument. Is he, is he saying you're spiritually uh, pover impoverished but you're actually rich or is he saying you're impoverished now how could they be impoverished in Smyrna a very wealthy city so how would that make them impoverished <clears throat> well, the reason they hated the Jews is this applies to the Christians anyway. They hated the Jews because they were atheists. They called them atheists, by the way, because they only believed in one God. They did not believe in all the other gods. So they treated them the way an atheist in the United States might have been treated circa 1950. Okay? Atheists today, no big deal. But that's a fairly new thing. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that was not acceptable. You, were, you could lose your job easily. You had a store and, and it was known you're an atheist. If there's anywhere I can buy that stuff somewhere else, I'm buying it somewhere else. So what happens to your livelihood? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. This was one of the first and most effective means of persecution. They didn't have to touch them. They just had to keep them at arm's length. We're not going to do business with you. We're not going to sell to you, which means where are you going to get your food? And we're not going to buy from you. 
So now they're in trouble. And they're in trouble because of their faith. Because that's why people would do that. So I know, and th- that, by the way, is my reading of this. It, it doesn't change anything important. But from the historical context, I think that fits the best. So that's what I choose. You guys can choose something else. You're really rich. Now we're talking about the way we would see uh, spiritual wealth. You have the Lord. You have the kingdom. You have forgiveness. They don't. You've got something they, every single one of them will crave. And you've already got it. So I know your poverty, but you're rich. And that fits with him saying, I know your, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. In other words, I get it. You're having a hard time. And I see it and I honor that in you. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews, but they're not. Now, again, who would say they're a Jew, but they're not? This is not, I guarantee you, a group of Gentiles pretending to be Jews. No one would do that. Because that's the last thing in the world you would want to be. And the last thing in the world you would want anyone to think you are. So what is a Jew who's not. Well, okay. But why would that Jew persecute Christians? Okay, so why would that make them not Jews? Isn't that what Jews did then? Because 30 years earlier, a council of rabbis met in Jerusalem and put out an edict. Every synagogue anywhere in the world was forbidden to allow anyone in their midst who accepted Jesus as Messiah. So how are they not Jews? All Jews at that time rejected Christians. I think maybe they were hypocritical Jews. I, at the time that they, um, that they, they were not true Jews because of ah. the bitterness of reproach and dirty language. So they're not true Jews. So what's a true Jew? Possibly, although, again, um, it can probably be taken for granted that they were ethnically Jewish or the descendants of those who had um, become Jewish and, and were then accepted. Remember, they didn't have any concept of DNA and then were accepted as Jewish from that point forward. Okay. So what made them Jews only by blood? Because they were in the synagogues and they were doing exactly what every synagogue anywhere in the Mediterranean world did. They had no faith. What faith did they not have? They had faith. They didn't have Jewish faith. They didn't believe in the one God. They had Jewish faith. They did believe in one God. 
You're, you're <laughs> extremely close. They were circumcised. They weren't practicing. Okay. Were I'm going to back up so I don't <laughs> drive you to frenzy and then <laughs> create an incident that will be on Facebook. I can see the Babylon Bee now picking it up. <laughs> um, from Jesus' perspective, those of you who are in the Romans class, what makes someone truly Jewish, a descendant of Abraham? Does anybody remember that from Romans? Because it's kind of the whole theme of Romans. Faith. Thank you. But faith in what? Yeah. And see, you corrected me, and you're right. It's not faith in what, but if I said faith in who, it was a little obvious. It's faith in Jesus himself. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. This was not optional. God sent the Messiah. You don't get to say, um, okay, I'll, I'll buy in, but someone else gets to say, I'll buy, I'm not. So, true Jews, real Jews, believed. Jesus says, if they're going to reject me, and they're rejecting God himself, they're rejecting the very plan that God had behind the covenant that they claim, they're not Jews. So now it makes sense in, in blood only, because again, of course they were Jews in blood, or um, you know, one generation after being assimilated, they were Jews in blood anyway. So of course that's true, because no one is going to pretend to be Jewish who's not. It just had too high a price tag. No benefits to it. But they weren't Jewish in the way that God says is most important. Go back and look at Romans. Because God says very, very clearly, the Spirit says through that book, it is not through flesh or the law, but faith that one is a child of Abraham. So you can be Jewish all you want if you don't believe in the covenant of Abraham and the fulfillment of that covenant, which is the Messiah. Then you're not. And then, if you go so far as to persecute those who do, which included Jews who had then been put out of the synagogue, but it also included the Gentiles. That, by the way, is the reason the Jews were so angry and that council met back in the 60s and said they have to be put out of the synagogue, is because the Jewish Christians were accepting Gentiles as Christians and equal to Jews before God. And they simply weren't going to accept that. And they never did. They still don't. Yes, sir. By my word, then you're a true disciple of mine. Yeah. And you'll know the truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not a new t teaching. Jesus himself taught this all the way. And that very thing, Jesus is the one who said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? So in Romans, those of you who are in that class, do you remember? Paul says, okay, but 
you can trim those vines off. You can prune them and throw them away. And the wild ones can be grafted in. So again, it's not about the blood, the heritage. It's about faith. That is what makes someone a child of Abraham. It has always been about faith. It still is today. But pop theology, from David's time forward up to today, <laughs> wants to come back to the flesh. Wants to value the flesh over faith. And it's just not biblical. So the Smyrnans were suffering blasphemy. What, what is blasphemy, by the way? No, it is not. It's actually blasphemy in Greek. The word blasphemy is a Greek word. It's just given English letters. I s say louder, please. Actually, I think it's the other way, but yeah. It's the, the things of Satan to God. God is evil. That is a form of blasphemy. Blasphemy is bigger. It's 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 a yeah. It it is this. It's speaking evil about someone, but usually, who is the someone? God. Now, the, the originally the word was not only a word that described uh, speaking against God. But it became used for that fairly quickly so that by this time, I think everybody who understood the language understood it didn't have to be that, but it usually was. So if blasphemy is happening and the Smyrnans are suffering this blasphemy, what do you suppose is the nature of the blasphemy, the substance of it? Are they just putting the Smyrnans down, the Smyrnan Christians? Yeah, they're putting Jesus down and the Smyrna Christians down because they believe in Jesus. So it's, it's still about him. And, and blasphemy itself always is. Okay? Now, the word gets used, if you're not Christian, from another perspective. So, for example... Um, any of you heard of the book Satanic Verses? Okay, some nods, some not so sure. Satanic Verses was a book, was it, was it all the way back in the 80s? Written by Salman Rushdie, who is Muslim, still is, as far as I know, uh, but on, on the spectrum, very liberal, and uh, it depicted things about the prophet, who's the prophet? Muhammad. Muhammad. See, I mean, there's the prophet. There's others, but there's the. Um, that were in the opinion of uh, certain people, particularly Ayatollah Khomeini, um, negative. Now, this is a human being, right? No. This is a human being who is the prophet of Allah. So blasphemy. It wouldn't be blasphemy if he was saying it about 
some other Muslim. It's about Muhammad, who therefore, since it's about him, it reflects against Allah himself, against God. So it, the word applies regardless of what faith background. For Christians, it's simply anybody who speaks against God. Now, there is a phrase in, in the scripture that is debatable, and we'll talk about it afterwards if you want. I think it's rather obvious from context. But there is what's called a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is defined by Jesus himself as the only unforgivable sin, the only thing that cannot be forgiven. I think it's a circular statement and therefore very easy to understand, but that's not what we're talking about. All blasphemy other than that is forgivable. So we're not talking about people who are condemning themselves to hell by doing it any more than those who refuse to, to give them food or did anything else for that pressure. But we are talking about people who are setting themselves against not just the Smyrna Christians, but Christ by the way they're living. And this is a very dangerous thing to do. And so if you are blasphemous, if you are, as we would say, genetically Jewish, but not of faith, are you truly of the real synagogue? Perhaps I should ask, what is synagogue? Also a Greek word, by the way, just given English letters. Sin, seen, not sin, S-I-N, S-Y-N. What? what? What is the prefix? Seen. What does the prefix mean? Because we still use it today. Hmm? No, seen. The prefix, S-Y-N. It means together. Okay? Ago is to be led or to go. So to be led or go together. So a synagogue was the place where the Jews were led or went together. Who, particularly the Jews who were not in Jerusalem because that was the temple in Jerusalem. But they didn't have a temple. They could not worship as God commanded with sacrifice because he commanded it to be only in Jerusalem. So there are all these other places. Smyrna, for example. So instead they gathered together in the synagogue and um, many Christians see it as just a Jewish church. It's not, but it was the gathering of Jews. Now, Jesus says it's a gathering of Satan. Synagogue, a gathering together of Satan. Um, those of you who have studied grammar or Greek, um, Satan of Satan is genitive. That's the case. It is genitive. Does that... Any English teachers? No? Okay. Well, that pretty much assures that no, none of us knows what that means because that's how, how much we value grammar today. Um, it means source, source of. Gen Genesis. Right? So it's not the synagogue that belongs to Satan although it probably did. It's not the synagogue made up of Satan, like a bar of gold, bar made up of gold. It is the synagogue that comes from Satan. Does that make sense? Satan is the source of this false group of people. 
So Jesus is recognizing a truth, but at the same time, he is condemning them, which had to be an encouragement because, again, the Smyrnans are getting this from Jews. And there was still that sense, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So Jews were not hated by the Gentile Christians. So they had this confusion. Wait a minute. We came from you. <laughs> How can you be this way with us? Jesus says, because they're false. They're not a synagogue of Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're not a synagogue of the law. The law creating, because the law, by the way, was what they focused on in the synagogues because they couldn't do sacrifice. They're a synagogue of Satan instead. Is that making sense? Okay. Most of that you get pretty simply from context. The problem is it's 2,000-year-old context, so you gotta, you got to kind of go back into that and just keep yourself in all these things we've been reminding ourselves about Smyrna and let that inform. Whereas what we tend to do is go back and, you know, well, we already know this, we already know this. Except a lot of times we miss a lot of what's being said because we don't really understand that context the way they would have heard it 2,000 years ago. All right. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you'll have tribulation, same word, for 10 days. Stop for a second. Hi. Oh, I thought you were joining us. We allow Siri to join, but I'm not going to let her teach. Um, let's see. We got synagogue. We missed suffer, didn't we? Or have we yet? There we go. Ten. Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Um, I'm going to come back to Satan because some of you touched on this and one of the questions, what do we know about him? We know a lot about him by his descriptions in Scripture because he's almost never named. Satan is not a name. Devil is not a name. It's a description. So we need to understand what the description is. Same as God, by the way. God is not a name. It's a description. It means deity. Does that make sense? Then why is capitalized? Because it is a proper noun. Uh, you, it's used as a title for him. So it's one thing to be a such and such. It's another to be the. And when we get to that, it'll be pretty obvious he's the. So, and remember, by the way, the capitalization is 100% translator. Because there were no, actually it was all capitals. There were no lowercase in the Greek that was written at this time. You cannot come in. Um, yes, we, this is becoming a zoo, this property. Okay, so let's start with the word suffer. Okay, I know, uh, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Which did tend to indicate, by the way, that they had some concept of what that was. You don't fear what you're oblivious to, right? So we can speculate about what they were about to suffer, and we can even fill in some of the blanks because we have history and we can look back. We've, we've got hindsight. But what does the word itself mean? That was the question. So what did you get for suffer? Okay. But it, it, I never heard so much good stuff about suffering. <laughs> so I would think he'd be affected 
all the good stuff, and then it tells you about the bad in the bad sins, except it's badly being bad plight or a sick person. Okay. Did, did anybody get the the literal meaning that goes back? It's got zero value on it. This is this is the etymology again. Let me let me ask it this way. What else did you get as far as words that translate this? Okay, so now, now you're hearing the opposite of that. Okay, so now you're hearing the opposite. And both, by the way, are accurate. And what did you get? Same thing. Sense, not sensible. Sense. Okay. And that, that leads to the root word. The root is to experience something from the outside. Okay, and how do we experience that which is outside of us? We have five senses. We see it, we hear it, we smell it, we touch it. Um, I suppose we could taste suffering, I'm not sure. Um, all of those things. Now, the, the, the context then decides, is this a positive thing or is this a negative thing? Don't fear what you're about to experience from the outside. Positive or negative? negative? Yeah. No one fears good stuff. <laughs> so obviously we're now referring to that. And that became the dominant because it started off more positive actually. But it became dominant with a twist because that was, as it was used, like all words over time, it begins to be used more and more in special ways. It began to be used more and more of suffering that was at the hands of something evil. Now, if there's, if there's suffering, if I'm suffering at the hands of something or someone evil, what does that say about me? Yeah, I'm, I'm not on evil's side, because why would evil be tormenting me if, if I'm with it, if I am evil? Uh, and by the way, there are some answers to that because it's evil for Pete's sake. But, you know, the, the way people think, if I'm experiencing something from Satan, Satan's attacking me, then s that says something good about me, right? Like I said, not necessarily, but okay, generally. Yeah, and, and that is how the word came to be used then. The connotation of it that was dominant. It's not... Yeah, you understand connotation and denotation, right? Denotation is the solid meaning doesn't change. But the connotation is how people used it and the, the, uh, the attached meaning in a cultural context. Sometimes it can be a culture of one, right? I say the word loo, what's the connotation to you? Good or bad? Okay, that was the right thing because she may hear this. Um, now, Someone else may have known somebody named Lou who ripped them off. So the word Lou says something very bad to them. Okay? That's, that is very personal connotation, our experience. But there's, there's a more generic connotation that is the way a culture uses a word. And that's usually what we're hearing when we're looking up these definitions. Because most of them are not going far enough back 
to get to the denotation that doesn't change. See? So it's okay to do that because it probably did apply, but it's, it's a little better to get to this. Now, let's have a little bit more fun with this. Pascal describes that that is an adjective. So, so that which is pascal is that which suffers, right? P-A-S-C-H-A-L. It's actually, uh, it was a big enough word in theology that hundreds of years ago it became a popular name. No, Pascal. Pascal's a little bit different. Pascal. P-A-S-C-H-A-L. Um, but it comes from that word. That's pretty much the English letters for that Greek word. Can you think of something else that's Pascal? Uh, it's related, but not the exact same thing. But you're very close. It's like, I'm going to walk on the edge, but not get there. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a Paschal lamb? The Paschal lamb? Have you ever heard that and wondered, well, what in the world does that mean? But you just keep saying it because, you know, it's a Christian thing to say. Does everybody here know the Paschal lamb is Jesus? Okay? Okay. Most people understand that. We use the term mostly around um, Easter. Maybe even more around Good Friday. Because Paschal describes the Lamb. The Lamb of God, by the way, that Lamb figure comes from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. But the Paschal Lamb means the suffering Lamb. But that suffering is good. In the same way, Good Friday is good. What do we celebrate on Good Friday? Nope. The crucifixion. We, did you hear what I just said? We celebrate the crucifixion. Really? Yeah, really, because we understand what happened as a result of that. So the, the word then took on and has for 2,000 years more positive connotation. And that's why sometimes when you look up the word, you're going to see very positive things about negative suffering. Because it has a very specific application, the big application for Christians for Pasquin. Uh, Pasquin is the infinitive form, Pasco, um, is Jesus, the sufferer. Now, is that making sense? Okay. It's, it's not complicated except... You have to go back and look through the uh, philology of it, the, the, the meaning of the words themselves. And when you do that, it's almost like a puzzle, which is why I have fun with it. So you guys need to start having fun. I want to see smiles when we're talking about this stuff. Okay, um, and then we got to this. But before we get to that, we've got two other things. Both of which you will see at different places, different translations, lowercase or uppercase um, first letters. Satan. What is the Greek word for Satan? Satan. Trick question. It's Satan. <laughs> or Satanos. Because there's an ending. Um, well, os is first person indicative. First, first person singular indicative. The, remember the English change or the ending changes in Greek 
depending on is it plural, is it singular, is it first person, second person, etc. Devil, what was the Greek word? Diabolos. Now, living this close to the border, you guys have heard that before, right? Because diabolos in Spanish and most Latin based languages is simply a transliteration. Interestingly enough, from the Greek. Think about that one because you know, it is, Spanish is a Latin language, but a lot of Latin was stolen from Greek. The Romans were great thieves. They were. The, the, you know, the Romans were good engineers and they were military geniuses for the time. Other than that, pretty much stole everything. Yeah, Latin's later. Ro- Latin is Roman. So the Romans conquered the Greeks and then stole most of their culture. <laughs> That's why the pantheon's the same. That's why the legends are the same. You know, so much of it. Now, what do these words mean? Because they're not names. Satanos. What is a Satanos? Adversary. How many of you used the word adversary last, year, last week? So what, what word would we use for adversary? Somebody who is adverse to us, what'd you say? Enemy. enemy. He, he is not an enemy, hence the capital, he is the enemy. And you've probably heard him referred to that way. I've, I've said it myself, sometimes the enemy will do this. Well, that's different than an enemy, <laughs> right? So he is the one who sets himself up against who? Yeah, thank you. Because the wrong answer is us. We are pawns. He doesn't care. But if you take someone's pawns, you hurt them. So absolutely, the enemy would love to devour you. Why? Because Jesus loves you. It's the only way he can hurt you. He can't hurt Jesus. So what can he do? This is real, by the way. I mean, it sounds like mythology. We've got to be very careful about that. With all of our technology and so forth, we start thinking that we're above that. And then we underestimate a real dynamic in life. And we get hurt. So Satan, Satanos, is the enemy. Diavolos, devil. What? Slanderer. Slanderer. False accuser. Which, by the way, I mean, I don't know if you know what you just did, but... You just gave a legal definition for slander. In the, uh, there's a, a perfect defense against slander and libel in the United States, in our law. What is the perfect defense? Truth. I don't care what I said about you. If it's true, it cannot be libelous and it cannot be slander. It may have been mean-spirited. I may have said it in a very hurtful way, and I may have intended it. But legally, I get to do that if it's true. If it's not true, I pay a price for that. It's not true with Satan, see? Now, somebody said another word. There's slander, which is to speak against or put someone down. But there was another word that, I think it was this side, but I'm not positive, someone else said. Accuser. Yeah. I'm not even sure it's false. It, uh, the, the word itself doesn't mean false. Oh, that's what, I, I 
Well, and, and yeah, again, that's because we've added that meaning, and I think that's a mistake. If it's false. But you can also accuse someone, and it's true, and it can be devastating to them. And the accusations that hurt us, whether it's the evil one, the enemy, someone who serves the enemy, or it's simply coming from us, it doesn't matter. It still hurts us, and it doesn't if it's false, because we know better. The ones that get us are the ones that are true. You're not really worth that. And the world says you're worth it. And the world's full of it. Because no, you're not. Nothing personal. You may be worth more than me. But you're not worth that. And you're certainly not worth Jesus. Am I right? I'm not saying that in a hurtful way. We have to get hold of that because we're, we are... Um, vulnerable to that kind of attack if we buy the lie that we're worth it, that we're good, that we're righteous. I am righteous in one way and one way only. It's not a trick question. Anybody know what it is? Jesus has declared me. It's a technicality of law, if you will declared me to be righteous. I am holy. He's cleaned me up spiritually. What do I do? I go jump in the muck. Because that's what we do. So when I am accused of that, it's not false. I've been accused of all sorts of false things. And they just go right off my back. Nah, it's the ones that are real that get me. And they do. Because I know they're true. And, I, and then I can just sit and and sit in it and stew in it and and I take on I become the devil I become literally the avalos accusing myself over and over and over frequently we do the devil's work for him I am not making a figure of speech out of Satan the devil he is a real person I say person in the broadest sense not human of course creature he is a creature. So one of the questions was, what do we know about Satan or the devil? Very Summarize. He's very little. He's, a, he's uh, our enemy. He's, he's, he's God's enemy and therefore ours. You know, again, why is the slander going against the Smyrnans? Because they belong to Jesus. They didn't belong to Jesus. Nobody cared. What else? So we've got, that's, that's this part. What else do we know about him? Well, we may or may not know that. I certainly wouldn't want to have to prove it. But certainly not from this passage. So from this passage, what do we... We know that from others, and somewhat from this. But I want to get back to, you said liar? Okay. And he is that. He's deceiver. This word can mean that too. Because most of the time, uh, in human, remember, in human interaction with each other, it is the slander that hurts. It is the lies that are told and then believed that hurts. 
So at a spiritual level, no. When, when you get to a certain point spiritually, you're not worried about that anymore. It, one of the funniest things in the world that I, I found when I became a new Christian was, I mean, I, I did the Jesus freak thing. I, within days, would stand up and give my testimony, which typically, the way we understood that was, tell them all the bad things about you, and Jesus forgave all of that, and that's not me anymore. Okay? But it started off with, list them all, and it was almost a contest. Sometimes it was a contest. We weren't known for our maturity. So then somebody would come along and say, Randy Christian, are you serious? Do you know what he did? And I would just sit back like, duh, I just told them. You know, it, it totally took away the sting. Yeah, they know what, I, what I've done. I know what I've done. I've confessed it. It's public. It's, it's gone. So it no longer has any power. See? That's how we fight them. Pretty much that's all we know from this passage. We do know he's a creation because of other passages. There is speculation about his origin, but it is only speculation because those passages are about someone else and then tradition applies them to him. Okay. And by the way, then there's that. Okay. So the word devils, what does that refer to? Yeah. Usually it's what we call demons, his followers. Uh, we know virtually nothing about them. You'll find volumes and volumes written about them, but we know from Scripture virtually nothing but they are his followers, and they are apparently doing the same thing. Well, I'm just going to ask. Go ahead. I don't know where in the Bible it says he may fall if it doesn't. Didn't, the devil didn't take a legion of angels with him when he went down? Well, again, it is highly, highly suspect that he went down. Yes. In other words, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. The passage you're thinking of is in the prophets and is referring to a human king. But tradition has taken that and applied it to Satan. So we've got to be very careful about those kinds of things because, again, what we find in a lot of books about Satan is stuff like that. The Bible never says that about Satan himself. So we're back to what do we know? You know. Personally, by the way, I think that's extremely intentional on God's part because we can get so interested in Satan, in evil, that we focus on him more than we do Jesus. We don't need to focus on him at all. I have zero fear of Satan. I have zero fear of any demons for one reason. What's the reason? Well, it's not just God and Jesus because there's people, God and Jesus exist and there's people who should fear them mightily. So why shouldn't I? It's obvious, but I'm, What? Because I've been redeemed. Because I belong to Jesus. Mm -hmm. yeah. See? That's different. Because let's remember, the majority of people on the planet don't. So I have no fear of that. And I'm not saying I'm stronger. I'm not saying I can handle them. I, can, I know the formula. There is no formula. And everything I read, they're much, much more powerful creatures than we are. <laughs> well, yeah, as long as you're running to Jesus. Please. Here's another way of seeing it. Uh, my brother and I never got along much. Um, 
never, ever got along much. Culminated when we were teenagers, we almost killed each other, literally. And we just called a truce, and that was kind of the way we left it. He died a few years ago, and it never really changed much. But when we were little, he's three years older, which translates to about that much. Right? And I knew that with him being that much bigger, if he let me get beat up by kids that much bigger, he was in for it at home. Had nothing to do with me. This was not a situation of, you know, anybody else attacks them, they get to, no. He would gladly have sat back and watched me just get kicked to pieces. But he couldn't. So if I wanted to be mischievous, which it is possible that I did on occasion, I would go and start twinking people. <laughs> I, would, I would start getting at people, at kids, bigger kids than me. And then when they turned around and were ready to let me have it, I would go over to my brother. And my brother was bigger. And my brother was also quite violent and rather good at it. And I was fine. I didn't know how, have to know how to beat those kids yet. Later on that happened. <laughs> but now I didn't have to know that. Now all I knew was he's bigger. So I just go stand. If they beat him up, that's fine. I'm still good. Jesus is our big brother. And unlike my big brother, there's no one who can beat him up. So as long as I stand with Jesus, I'm fine. Satan cannot touch me. Devils cannot touch me. No matter what they are or aren't. I don't need to know. I don't want to know. I want to know more about Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, so he says, don't fear them. We just did a lot for that one thing. But like them, we will go through pressure. We will go through times, sometimes simply coming from outside that, that are not personal, and sometimes it is very personal. How will we deal with that? Not by fear. And then it says, you will be tested, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Anybody find anything about the 10 days? Is it literal? Is it figurative? I'm sorry, I'm losing the ends of your sentences. Okay. You're, you're... You know, the 10 day trial in the book of Daniel. Okay. They went through a trial period. Okay. Did you correlate that with Revelation or is that just for the period? Well, the only thing I can say at this moment is I asked you first. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't hear. <laughs> Know that or them know that it was going to be a short amount of time, a beginning and an end to the suffering. Okay. And it wasn't going to last. So now what you've just done is gone into the world of numerology. The, the number 10 has certain characteristics or qualities. It's a round number. It is certainly a complete number. So the end. And uh, it is a multiplier, but it is the base of the multipliers. So you'll see 10, you'll see hundreds, you'll see thousands. All of those are symbols in numerology, and numerology is one of the primary characteristics of apocalyptic literature. 
So if it is symbolic, then yeah, it fits real, real well. Now, how many of you vote it's symbolic? How many of you vote it's literal? How many of you vote, I don't know. Okay. Now, literally, I don't know, but I lean to the symbolic personally because it fits so well. There, there was actually, even at this time, there was a custom that I've heard quoted once ever. So I, I kind of wonder about how real it is, to be honest. Um, I'm trying to remember where I saw it. I think you can find it in InterVarsity um, Bible Background Commentary. I think that's, that's where I saw it. But uh, the, the custom being that 10 days was a typical time uh, to put somebody... Prisons were not used the way we use them. One did not go to prison and serve a sentence of 10 years. If you're going to be somewhere for 10 years, you're going to work yourself to death in the salt mines. We're going to get some use out of you. you know. Prisons were to hold people for a short period of time securely until you either decided to let them go which happened for various reasons, or you killed them. And a typical time would be 10. Okay? Now, I believe what I read is probably not historically accurate. I think what it's reflecting is people would say, okay, you're going to do your 10, 10 days, which could have been 5, could have been 7, and it didn't change the meaning. The point was, you're going to serve your short t time, and then something's going to happen. What Jesus is saying here clearly is, whether it's literal or not, that 10 days is not a long time, and then it's done. So that would have been something that everybody would have resonated with, would have understood. What about debtors? Well, debtors' prisons were actually a later invention. Um, originally you would be thrown into prison until you paid, but the way you paid was you would be taken out of prison and put to work. Even a Roman citizen could have his citizenship stripped and be um, temporarily thrown in jail, and that was to wait and see if someone bought you out. And if they didn't within a short period of time, you became a slave. Yeah, it, it was... They, they would simply sell you to pay off the debt. And then your work became how the person who bought you paid off their investment. See, for them, they were, they were quite cold about this. Debt was very serious. Okay, so what it boils down to is we're not entirely sure if it's, is it literal, is it figurative. My vote is it's probably figurative representative of, but it could have been literal because certainly 10 days could be a period of time that something happened. Um, I don't know of any historical reference to what he's specifically pointing to at this point in time in Smyrna. But that in and of itself is also very inconclusive because clearly we don't have historical references of most of what happened in each of those cities. So, pay your money, take your choice. So, Instead of fearing, he's not chewing them out, 
He's not saying, you started, you started fearing. Look at you, you twerps. He simply says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And then he offers them something to do instead. Because if you've ever tried not to fear without putting something in its place, it won't work. <laughs> you just sit there going, I will not be afraid. <laughs> yeah, you're talking yourself into the fear even more. So be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, I said something will happen that um, will end the 10 days. Did you hear me say that a little while ago? That was Jesus' message. Now, did you hear what Jesus' message was about what might happen? They may kill you. There is nothing here that says, hey, don't worry about it. I'm going to get you out of there. Everything's going to be restored. You're going to have all the wealth. You're going to be happy. Everything's going to be cool. No. They may kill you. And in fact, frequently did. But, unlike people in the world, Jesus doesn't see that as the last thing. Nor should we. So, be faithful until death. You stop and think about it. It's really not that long. I mean, on an internal scale, right? Mm -hmm. After death, faithful becomes a bit easier because we're not facing the same things. Now is when it's hard. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life, a crown which consists of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's, again, a figure of speech that you're going to see over and over. It means listen, it, pay attention to it, do this. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? That was one of the questions. Okay, so the second death is... You say spiritual death. It is one of two things. It's either the judgment or it is the execution of the judgment. And they tend to be, in Scripture, talked about together. Yeah. Because there's going to be judgment, and then whatever that judgment is, is going to be carried out. So the second death might be the judgment or might be the carrying out of it. What about the separation of those who enter the second death from themselves for eternity and those ultimately Yeah, where'd you get that? Well, Fuller is a big school with lots of people. Okay, so where you got that was a commentary and a guy saying this is what it talks about, or its meaning. So decide what you think about it and take it if you like it. I think it may very well be, but I don't bother to go there. I don't need to know. Anybody here think the second death is anything short of, of the ultimate catastrophe? Anything short of that? I say, we all get that, right? Second death means whatever hell means. Do not tell me you know what hell means because you don't. I don't either. I have all sorts of figures of speech in Scripture that tell me I don't want to find out. But that's the second death. Yeah. I know it's worse than anything we can possibly come up with. So now we, we get an explanation of what this fellow thinks is happening. Uh, part of what you just said is simply a, 
uh, restatement of what Jesus himself said in the separation of the sheep and the goats. It depends on, on what you mean by the second death. Some would refer to it as the whatever happens when the resurrection happens. And the separate, if you go to the separation of the sheep and the goats, if you believe that very separation is the second death, then no. Because Christians are the sheep, so we're going to be separated from the goats. So there's going to be that happening. I mean, is it literally we're all going to be gathered together and God's going to go, you over there, you over there? Personally, I don't think so. I, I think it was clearly a figure of speech. So I believe what you said is probably an accurate statement. We are exempt in the sense that I'm not going to be judged. The reason I'm not going to be judged is I already have been. Well, I've already been judged. And by the way, I was found guilty. I'm quite at peace with that. If God sends me to hell today, I've got no gripes. I ain't going to like it, but I've got no gripes. God is just. He is righteous. I deserve it. But Jesus stepped in and said, yes, guilty. But I'm going to die for him. He wouldn't have died for me if I wasn't guilty, right? would be pretty much a waste of time. He paid my death, my second death. And, and so I have been forgiven of that, and the New Testament refers to me now not as someone who is going to be judged, Hebrews 10, but someone who is going to be reunited with his father and his big brother, Hebrews 12. I believe, by the way, that will still be a terrible thing for us. Literally terrible. The word phobos, fear, means fear, it means terror, it means awe on a scale that basically brings you back to fear and terror. But it's not for the same reason. I do not fear God because I'm afraid of what he's going to do to me. God is totally just. I mean, I've been there. I have faced death. I believe I can separate myself from God, but that's a whole different discussion. But I don't fear that because I have no intention of doing that. Um, what I'm going to do, I've said this before, I, I, just, I have no doubt of this because I think it's everybody in, in history will do this. We will, it says every knee will uh, bow. Well, okay, I think a little more literal will be everyone will hit the dirt. You know, and, and I will simply be I will be totally satisfied to be laying there. Totally satisfied. I, I will need nothing but to just lay there. But he's already said he's not going to leave me there. This is why I don't, that's why I say I don't think it, it is an error to say that we're exempt from the second death. Now, is there an actual legal proceeding that's going to happen? Personally, I don't think so. There is, of course, the tradition. We're going to appear before God. He's going to look us up. Is he in the book? Yes, he's in the book. Oh, come on now. Can we not agree that's a figure of speech? Does anybody here really believe God doesn't know right now? Of course he knows. So, you know, we can, we can say, of course those are figures of speech to help us understand something. 
the understanding is my fate is based on Jesus. And back to what we, we started off with, faith in Jesus. What, what makes a follower of Jesus? It isn't that I do everything he did, because none of us does. It's faith. Which will lead me to do as much of what I can do as possible, but... Dwight Moody said, those who were born once will die twice. Those who were born twice will die once. And I, I, I think it's very much like what you were just saying. I personally buy that. But yes, that's one of us saying it. And so, you know, if you don't like that and you like standing before the judgment and God is the judge saying, um, guilty, but someone's taken your, your place already, so you go over there, whatever. Uh, you know, when we get there, not one of us is going to object. Okay? All right, a little bit over real quick. Uh, a fun one. Why did I have overcomes written down? No, it's not. It is right there. What's, it, what's the word? What, say the word again. Nike. Nike. Whoa. Yeah. The word means? Victor. Yeah. It was actually a minor god. It was the god of victory. They had gods of everything. So when Phil Knight founded that company, his intent, of course, was that this shoe was going to help his team, Oregon, to victory. And therefore, it became victory. Only it was the Greek word, Nike. By the way, they would pronounce it Nike in Greece today, but that's okay. Phil Knight doesn't really care. Yeah, I'm afraid I haven't memorized all slogans. Yeah, no, <laughs> Nike does, I can tell you they have a nice headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon, where I lived for 15 years, and a very nice set of running trails, which depending on who is in charge of security on any given day, you may or may not get to use. If you're a Nike employee, you get to. Otherwise, go run and see if they kick you off. Okay, here is next week's. So, Lucifer um, is also a uh, description and or name, depending on how you want to take it. Go ahead and put those across if you would. Yeah. Well, I don't think you'll find the text saying the phrase fallen angel. In fact, I'll guarantee you, you won't. Yeah. Um, Lucifer, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact meaning. It is a pretty name. It is a very positive, very beautiful name. Um, and that was kind of the point that we sometimes forget that he is sometimes beautiful and pretty, which tricks us. Well, again, fallen, I don't think you're going to find in Scripture. No, but he went from being... 
the love to being this, and to not being to being evil. How do you go from that to that if you didn't? Well, to be demoted, you have to be promoted, and there's no nothing in scripture that says he was. All I'm saying is, this is all imagination, folks. Are you asking me if he was, or are you asking me if scripture says? Well, isn't it the same? No. No. Scripture doesn't say. Therefore, I don't know if he was. Yeah. I love that answer. By the way, neither do you. But if you wish to believe that, I don't think it's going to hurt your faith. So, yeah. The one, the one thing to be very careful of. Yeah. The one, yeah, don't spend much time on it. That's the thing to be careful of. And, and here's the thing to be extremely careful of. Do not, under any circumstances, fall into the trap of seeing the evil one as the dark side. There is no yin and yang. There is no light side, dark side. There is God. There is creation. He is part of creation. He does not rate on the scale with God. He is not omnipresent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. He has none of the characteristics of deity. Did you hear what I just said? He's not everywhere. If you are being attacked by Satan, good. Keep him busy. Because the rest of us then are, are we're free. <laughs> and Satan does not know everything you think. He doesn't know everything that's happened. Only God knows that. So, you know, we've built him up to be an evil God in our in mythology, and it's just wrong. And there's again, absolutely nothing in the Bible that supports it, but we do it anyway. We know a few things. We just covered a couple. There's a few more. There's a few more. We only covered this passage, but we don't know anywhere. You could probably write on one page what we know. Good night.